When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week our year is 1901, and our book is The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I'm going to be discussing it with my guests Alex Higley and Willie Fitzgerald, whom you may remember from our Alice Monroe episode or our Wright Morris episode. I'm really happy to have them back with me for this. Um, to summarize this book, Sherlock Holmes is investigating the death of Sir Charles Baskerville, who's a wealthy man who had a manor house, but also a family curse. Um, and he appears to have been pursued till he died by a spectral hound, a glowing, giant glowing dog, um, said to have cursed the Baskerville family for hundreds of years. Uh, Holmes believes that this was a murder, and the um, new heir to the Baskerville fortune is also in danger. Um, so Holmes sends Dr. Watson to investigate this manor house and the moor surrounding it. So uh, it has ancient Neolithic structures from distant past, and there's also quicksand. Um, and then there's various people living in and around the estate, uh, who of course are all suspects. Um, and then it turns out that Holmes himself is hiding on the moor um, without telling Watson. And he has independently discovered even more facts than Watson did, and they put put it all together, and eventually it all leads to solving the mystery and protecting the new uh, Sir Baskerville, Sir Henry Baskerville, from the various wrongdoings. Um, And at the very end, Sherlock Holmes explains everything. Uh, I'm not going into too much more detail about the twists and the turns of the plot, because it doesn't really matter. It'll be clear, I think, when we're talking. Um, All right, on to our conversation. In possibly, is this a first in lit century history? We're going to invert the structure here. And I, uh, as one of your two guests, wants to know why you, the host, uh, chose. Read this book. <laughs> uh, yeah, why you foisted upon me this hundred year old mystery. Um, no, I'm curious, why'd you pick uh, How Do the Baskervilles, this sort of uh, iconic Sherlock Holmes mystery? Um, well, so like the first. Part of that, the answer is that I thought it was short fiction. And then I was like, oh, this isn't that short. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah, yeah, short fiction team, you know, this was the rematch. And so God I was like, what's damn it. <laughs> then I was like, oh, this is actually a novel. It's a full book. <laughs> it's a whole book. But it reads like a short story because it doesn't feel like you're reading that long. And then all of a sudden, two ponies have been absorbed into quicksand and the dog is glowing. And, you know, um, I, I chose it honestly, because in our, uh, when I was doing research for our great Gatsby episode, and I saw how influential that Sherlock Holmes structure was of having Watson observing Holmes as kind of, it's not just the logic of the book about how the story is told. It's also, um, it's kind of like the attitude that the reader is supposed to bring to the book 
um, which is the idea that there's like this person, Sherlock Holmes, who has these special ways that are unlike other people's ways. And you couldn't just have Sherlock Holmes be the protagonist of the book. You also have to have this framing device of Watson being continually amazed by Sherlock Holmes to kind of direct the reader's attention and to show the difference between ordinary intelligent reader mind and like this genius Sherlock Holmes mind. And just noticing how influential that sort of pairing of a narrator and then a character who's unusual in some way had become through the 1920s through 40s, like that that this was very influential as a narrative mode. And I was like, all right, like I had read Sherlock Holmes stories, you know, when I was younger, just thinking about the various ways people talk about the rules of mysteries, you know, that you have to sort of have the clues inside the story. Um, And I'd thought about Sherlock Holmes as late 19th century kind of raising up and celebration of rationality, um, kind of like a a figure of industrial age. I'd, I'd sort of seen Sherlock Holmes in all of those lights. And I was like, all right, let's, let's take a look at him. You know, let's look at him in a new light, um, which is a 20th century, not a late 19th century, but an early 20th century figure uh, who was influential in ways that I hadn't considered before. So that's why I wanted to take a look at him. And then I chose Hounds of the Baskerville, Hound of the Baskervilles in particular, because it freaks me out. It's so scary. <laughs> it's, it's a real, yeah, it, it feels indebted to so many like classic gothic i mean the fog on the moor and the spooky old house and the like the flaming hound it it yeah it it was like actually incredibly gripping uh in in the like the kind of horror department um and i think it's interesting that you picked this also as I pretend to be the host of this podcast. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it reminds me of something our friend was saying just the other day about Tolkien and fantasy. And it seems that like Arthur Conan Doyle's like Sherlock plays a very similar role in mystery. It's like, there's a whole genre, like the hard boiled detective. Maybe we'll talk about this later, but um, the like noir and the move towards realism and mystery fiction is like a direct refutation of Sherlock Holmes. Like he looms so large and he's so intrinsically tied to what we think of, like, I think as mystery, and I'm not even a huge mystery writer, but it feels like he has, he is like this landmass around which everyone has to like either steer into or uh, definitely avoid in the way yeah, that you like have to do in that conversation with, with him, whether yeah. or not you are a fan. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of, of talking about Tolkien, where it's like, you just, you gotta deal with him. Like, you yeah, just, you can't not. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, there, there are writers who, who do kind of avoid him entirely because he's so like, Tolkien, I mean, so intrinsically like Western European and all that stuff. But like, when you think of high fantasy and like elves, it's like, oh yeah, Lord of the Rings. Cool. I think that mystery is in a way even more particular than um than fantasy because 
there's so many ways to write about stuff that's not quite real or like mm. animals that are, aren't real animals. You know, it's like everyone has invented this idea all throughout human history. But um, the idea that you tell a story in which all of the clues are somewhat woven into the story and that there's a central figure who's supposed to figure them out kind of in sync with the reader in a way um, where the detective's habits of mind are um, kind of supposed to be illuminating to the reader in some way. Like it's so particular. Also you're dealing with, you're always dealing with law enforcement, even if it's not like, like you don't read this and think about law enforcement, but there's like bureaucratic structures that you just know as being a person in the world that you're getting the trickle down for the way that information is received, even if it's, you know, a little bit more singular, like because we're dealing with someone like Sherlock and we're getting it focalized through Watson, like there's still a certain rhythm to these stories because of where, where you're starting out. It's not like we have to be told okay, this is what it means to look into, you know, a murder. This is, there, there's like a certain kind of structure inherent in these stories at all. I, <laughs> I had no experience reading uh, Sherlock. The, I had seen the TV show from what, like 10 years ago with... Uh, one. Yeah, I've seen yeah. that one. But as I was reading this, this is possibly too revealing. I kept thinking about... <laughs> Adam West Batman because it's yeah. exactly although th that show is not focalized through the Robin character like the the way that Adam West plays Batman is Sherlock and like Watson and like Robin is Watson and I was just like I hadn't ever put that together <laughs> and I was like so the whole time I'm kind of thinking like okay yeah all right Adam West and uh, so that colored uh, <laughs> that colored my early reading for sure you want to talk about digressions I, I brought in Adam West so I think I can trump this whole thing there um, I watched the uh, DuckTales episode that's based oh, yeah. on the book, and I also watched Doing real research yeah. <laughs> is it original run DuckTales or is it new fancy DuckTales no it's the original run DuckTales because that was actually my first my, the first time I encountered this plot was um, from DuckTales and I mean I was you know whatever a little kid and I was just like, whoa, I'm like glowing dog. Whoa. You know? <laughs> um, which, and okay. So this is this, like, I want to pull back for a minute and say that one of the reasons that I watched this DuckTales episode and I watched the elementary episode that's based on this book. It's like another Sherlock Holmes TV show. And mm -hmm. I had watched the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock Holmes episode, the one that's based on this a while ago. I didn't revisit it because I think I had to like pay <laughs> for some like additional streaming access. Um, but uh, I, I like one of the things that's really interesting to me to read it in the frame of rationality or rationalism is that it's not rational at all. The thing that the story is about is a glowing dog that haunts a castle. And you can change everything about the story except that. And you're still talking about The Hound of the Baskervilles. <laughs> but, like, if you change the glowing dog that's, like, killing rich people, 
it's not really the same story anymore, you know? Um, and I think that that's one of the things that's interesting about it is now, if you talk about like logic or rationality, usually what you're, um, it's against emotion. Like that's the thing that it's in, in contrast to, but in this, in very much in a um, late 19th century way, logic or rationality is in contrast to um, the supernatural. So it's nearly entirely a supernatural story. Like almost everything that happens is supernatural until Sherlock shows up and he's been hanging out in the moor and he's perfectly shaved and he's well-dressed, which, you know, like Thoreau, who's doing his laundry. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's interesting to me how much a detective story um, these days would not be almost entirely a supernatural story unless it's like maybe Scooby-Doo. Like, I think that there are some forms of detective story where it's like almost completely supernatural until the very last minute. And then they're like, oh, just kidding. There's actually a very flimsy, technically this could happen explanation for these things. It does have a Scooby-Doo vibe. I never would have thought of that, but it's yeah. so true. It's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, no, you here you go. That's... Yeah, but don't you think that's ultimately like what the story kind of resolves to, which is that there is a logical quote. I'm, I'm doing scare quotes. Yeah, of course. Uh, We're like, going to talk more about logic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, a more like rational. I mean, I think one way you can think about like, yeah, mystery is like, um, and I've heard this said about like police procedurals as well, is that they're like an inherently conservative genre, genre because the mystery starts with the disruption of the status quo, which is often a death. Uh, you know, it's like the cold open of law and order. Like they find a stiff in the trash can or something. Um, and then ideally it will resolve with the return of the status quo um, by someone being punished or then that trope being subverted. And in this story, it feels like there's the introduction of the supernatural. And it's also couched in this like, my favorite part of this whole book is talking about British history and the like the little glimpses you get of it. It's like, oh, these people lived in these stone huts in the mire. And it's like, this is awesome. This is so good. Um, but then at the end, he's like, oh no, here's here's my logical explanation for it. So he kind of like returns the world to the to the rational by saying the dog was covered in phosphorus and here's where he kept it and all this stuff. Well, so um, I actually, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you too much. I just no, want to I'm done. Yeah, on to one no. of your points, which is that that was actually why I revisited the DuckTales episode, because I remembered as I was listening to the, sorry, reading, reading the book, listening to the audiobook, um, I um, was also struck by how much rationality isn't just against the supernatural, it's also against the historical, um, mm -hmm. and how much mm -hmm. the idea of these Neolithic um, Stone Age people who had been living in the same landscape and it it is very concerned with the past because that's where the curse comes from is the past of the Baskerville family that there's like their bad relative who you know was um you know an asshole and had a curse put on the family but then there's even older than that there's the people that you know had these stone houses that were on the moor um 
And it does have this feeling that, um, that the supernatural doesn't just come from like witches or something. It comes from history specifically and an unshed past um, that hasn't that of like irrational people and superstition of people who have not had the light of Sherlock Holmes sort of blasted onto all their, (laughs) their beliefs. And um, so I remembered from the DuckTales episode that, that there were druids. And so that's why I watched it again. And in fact, the plot in that one is that, um, that the castle is actually built in one of the stone, like Stonehenge type druid circles and so the druids are trying to that like still living druids you know descendants of druids are trying to scare the scrooge mcduck family out of the castle with the hound because it's their sacred space that the castle was built on and i remembered that plot from when i was a kid you know and i remembered it and i feel like it's not actually that far off from from the actual plot you know, and like the plot in the Benedict Cumberbatch episode is like everyone's on drugs, right? Yeah, it's like a fear serum. It's got like a real scarecrow in the Christopher Nolan Batman movies vibe. I remember. Yeah, yeah. and in the um, the uh, elementary episode, um, it's that they they think that there's that they're like doing a genetically modified dog for the military, but then it turns out it's the like Boston dynamics, like dancing robot dog. (laughs) All the ways that people change this plot, I think have um, like, there's ways in which it illuminates what the actual plot is. Like in some ways you have to have the menacing glowing dog. And then you have to have a middle-class person, Sherlock, the detective, who's coming up against the relationship between a rich person and the people that they have power over in some way, right? Like this feels like the sort of the fundamental layout of the story is you have a middle-class person who has some kind of like uh, mobility. And then you have someone who's absolutely tied to the land by virtue of being a castle owner. That part makes sense to me. Say a little bit more about why Sherlock's class is important to the plot i think that um the 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 whole idea of rationality is only i I think to the concept of power i think rationality it's like i think i've said this before probably to you personally but um when you think about like what does it mean to be rational is it rational to be gay and it's like extremely not rational to be gay while that is not something that's um like aligns with power. And then when the majority of society switches over and is like, Oh, maybe there's, maybe we're being ridiculous about this. Then suddenly there's nothing irrational about being gay. Like on some level, the word rationality just means how well you align with power Hmm. or how well what you're doing aligns with uh, kind of the reasoning that power gives for why it does what it does. Um, And you're saying if Sherlock, if Sherlock was, from a higher class, even if he was the kind of person with the kind of gifts that he had, he wouldn't necessarily be motivated to use them in the same way and like uh, have them like 
be the motor of his agency to just <laughs> investigate crimes because he would be he wouldn't even have a job he wouldn't have he wouldn't be is that what you're saying no i sorry thank you for pushing me on this because i don't think that what i'm saying actually has all of the ingredients of what i mean um i think that sherlock holmes mysteries are an artifact of the dominance of the middle class in this era. And part of that has to do with the concept of, as you were saying, law enforcement. Part of it has to do with the idea that law isn't just whatever the king says. Got it. It's something that is in some way created and maintained by middle class people mm -hmm. for their protection and for their comfort. And like there's this character, Selden, who is a criminal, and the way that they talk about his criminal nature. Um, it's a thing, you I was, know. I was it, hoping we would get. I was hoping we would get here because it's it's very very striking. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, there are obviously detectives who are like upper class. There are detectives who are lower class in all of detective fiction. I think that this particular model, the Sherlock Holmes model, is one that is about the dominance of the middle class, and hmm. he's solving problems that an upper class person has, but that person is really tied to this particular piece of land through inheritance. And then there's the lower class people who are very much tied to the piece of land. Um, you know, they talk about like how, Oh, the servants have been with our family for a hundred years and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, several generations of their family, obviously not those particular people, but. And the uh, supernatural element doesn't work without that. Like you were saying, like the, yeah. the, the very high and the very low attachment to the land fuels that supernatural quality. And I think for whatever reason, it, I mean, I think because he's Sherlock and you have some experience with it, but you expect you, ex and I mean, you expect from Watson and from Sherlock for there to be a, a refutation of that, um, that connection yeah. in a way. Yeah, exactly. The, um, like you were saying, it's conservative because at the end of the story, the status quo is maintained and upheld. And, you know, the course of inheritance runs smoothly, but um, the, the source of the supernatural and the source of the um, hocus pocus in the story is like these historical ties to the land rather than like Sherlock who comes in and gets everyone to sort of straighten out, stop being so unreasonable, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And it, it also, yeah, I mean, Sherlock is like, he he is often described as this sort of like bohemian, like he is a kind of like a man without a, um, without a history in, 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 I mean, he has almost no personality, really, like he doesn't have, or he has plenty of personality, but he has no character, which is like a, I feel like, an important distinction it's like the reason that he is there's some thought that he is the first superhero for example which just yeah. kind of loops back in your adam west thing and that's that's not my take that's a that's a kind of old um an older take um but yeah i i never thought about it in terms of his um i mean he and watson get together as borders so like they are they are not they don't own they, they live in the house owned by Mrs. Hudson 
like they are sort of they're they're the renter class and yet that affords homes the um latitude to kind of uh go up and down like he hires the sort of newsboy to like come along with him and bring him bread into like this dangerous <laughs> swamp uh which is not a cps approved uh, employment but that was not really an issue in late 19th century england but and he's, he's also century just ex- excuse me sorry yeah yeah sorry i'm always so bad at not that. fuck that up although actually <laughs> not on no, this no, podcast okay. this is point point of clarification oh yeah this book is set before <gasps> that's good holmes's point. death holmes's faked death in um the i think it's called the final problem and so this is the first book that arthur conan doyle wrote after this is such a fact, I did this is my own kind of, and for people familiar with Sherlock Holmes, I'm probably going to butcher it and it's pretty familiar, but Doyle got tired of writing Holmes. And so he killed him. He threw him off a waterfall. And then people got so mad that they almost like, they like canceled their subscriptions en masse to the paper where he was serialized and they did all this stuff. So this is the first story that he writes after eight years away from this character. Um, but it is set before his death, quote unquote death, and, right. and later so, resurrection. The so 20th, it is, it is century, late 19th century. 20th century police let you off this time. I would have loved to. It's because of my keen, rational mind. <laughs> I would have oh, loved to man. read this serially. I feel like this would be a particularly great novel to read as it was originally published. And I didn't look up what the breaks were for the publication of it originally in the strand. I wasn't familiar with the strand. Were you guys? Uh, just barely. That's what it said. That's what it said. It was yeah. originally published in, a, in a, a paper or a magazine called the strand. And I was like, I don't know. I, I wasn't familiar with that. Um, anyway. Yeah. I feel like because uh, the way this novel works structurally and because of how hard the cuts are at chapters, it just would work so beautifully. I mean, you you could you could really I feel like not lose anything at all reading it. I think honestly, it would probably gain power. Um, I don't know. I read it. Yeah, I read it online at Project Gutenberg scrolling. So that's a quite a different experience. Yeah, I think that it probably would be really satisfying to read serially because mm-hmm. I think it's probably got some really juicy cliffhangers. It does. And it, it actually really reminded me in this, I mean, again, because the mystery genre has like certain um, conventions and there's pacing things, but it really does. I don't know if either of you watched Mayor of Easttown, which I thought was pretty good, but it, it has the thing in every episode at the end, you're like, I have a bad feeling about character X. And then the next episode <laughs> invariably opens where it's like, nah, they're fine. But at the end of the following episode, you're like, ah, character Y, there's something wrong. <laughs> and it is this like, uh, it's interesting to see, especially in the early going chapters of this novel, the like various red herrings that are thrown out. You know, it's like the man who trails them in the carriage has a beard and like mm-hmm. oh, the butler has a beard. And so there is this sense of literally <laughs> participation where you're like, I think I'm kind of on to all this. Um, and then, but the pattern is, is, has not changed very much. It's like, you have to introduce people and then you kind of like gradually 
push them off screen because um, the sort of the, to use a Sherlockian term, like the net is cinching around as the, as the story goes. Um, but that really has not changed in serialized mysteries. Like we'd see even in something like mayor of Easttown, which is deeply like realist is, is trying to be like a realist murder mystery. Uh, and it's not, trying to be so much of a like law and order procedural it wants to be like a more sort of like yeah just sort of naturalistic mystery uh whereas this one is is almost like campy but again it's 100 years old well and i think on the other side of campy is that it's so much fun yes yeah it's a fucking blast it's a roller coaster ride it is um and i think that that mixture of um like the supernatural and the the idea that everything is going to be explained uh it's you know i don't know that i would like it less if it were purely supernatural but i do think that like um a book that just goes for it with quicksand where they're like, I saw a pony get sucked into that quicksand yesterday. Oh look, there's another pony going for it right now. Oh my god, look at that pony. You're all about this race. They lose, yeah, they lose one pony per day in the Grimpen Mire. The Grimpen Mire. Um, um, and I mean that's just over overemphasizing the pony angle. Um, I when I first read this, I got to the part where the guy is like you know, they can see that he died of fear. They can see that there's nothing on his body to show that, you know, any violence or anything. Um, And um, that his fingers are like dug into the ground where he died and that he had been running because you can see that like the tip that his footsteps start to just be tiptoes and chased. And um, and it's just terrifying. You know, it's just so scary. Like the descriptions of scary stuff are so scary. Um, it just, it got to me. It got to me slightly less this time because I knew that we were going to get to a long, somewhat cold-blooded inheritance plot involving, I don't know, not especially well-differentiated, not especially humane characters. Did you feel that way? I didn't feel like the characters were really developed like they would be in a book where you're there for the characters. I think that would be one advantage to reading it serially because I can imagine the early chapters. And then I think, I think like the first third, slightly more of the book would work in a similar way, but it would be helpful as a reader for me to like slow down towards the end of this book and talk it over with people as it was going because of that kind of, uh, mess of characters at the end in the grip and mire. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like as a reader, my, my favorite parts were early, early on in the novel and then kind of understanding how it was working structurally because it really is amazing how little for a mystery, obviously this isn't that unique to have, you know, you don't actually get the murder in scene. A lot of the most important things are not in scene, but I think it's particularly striking with this novel that in a way, the way that Sherlock, when Sherlock is, you know, deducing something, 
and kind of like free associating. It's basically like in scene summary. Yeah. And it's like, it's like the other side of it. And so it's amazing that it works as well as it does because you're getting that funneled into pure summary in letters and then more summary in diaries. And then towards the end, when you kind of, when the novel kind of like catches up with itself and Sherlock emerges from the more, and you're a little bit more in scene in the narrative present of the novel, there is a lot more of that inheritance plot to deal with. And there's a lot more just, there's a lot more percolating character wise, but I think the most interesting stuff is actually all that stuff that's happening in summary earlier in the novel for me as a reader. Yeah. And very much like the horror movie now, like the, um, that distance between the in scene versus the horrific thing, it increases your dread. Mm. Cause if you actually watched a big glowing dog, chasing someone that would be less horrifying than kind of just seeing this aftermath and piecing together what happened. Certainly like seeing the shark in jaws. Right. I mean, sorry. Yeah. 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 A, a big part. I think the reason that the opening of the book feels like so much fun. And as soon as the inheritance plot is revealed felt kind of flat to me is that, um, the this type of mystery and here i'm cribbing a little bit from this writer robert boswell who um has a great essay about um noir fiction called the private eye point of view uh and he's basically like he delineates via raymond chandler the sort of noir great that um in an effort to reject the Sherlock Holmes mystery, which is all about tangible objects. I mean, what's so fun about the first part of this is you get all the same objects, the things, it's a very thingy mystery and you get all the same things. And like Watson at the outset makes this, what seems to be a very plausible reading of a set of objects. And then Sherlock just sort of nags him for like <laughs> seven pages. He's like, you dumb asshole. No. Um, <laughs> Uh, whereas like you made some good tweets about this. Yes. Yes. I, I, I used a slightly different, um, uh, phrasing for, uh, it. So, so Conan Doyle and Sherlock, there are these incredibly like thingy mysteries where like you can divine entire solutions from like where cigar ashes fall and footsteps and all this stuff. But he, as soon as these things come get um, human desire and motivation, they're garbage. Like it, it just doesn't resonate like at all, really. It's like, oh, I loved him. And like his wife is this set upon woman who probably would like kill this guy in his sleep, the, you know, ultimate perpetrator, this guy Stapleton. But yet she kind of comes straight out and is like, oh, I loved him and I would do anything, but I couldn't do that, but I would do this. And it's the same thing with the inheritance plot feels very thin. Like, so what I'm trying to drive at is what Chandler sort of delineated. And he said that like the, the, the detective of noir fiction would be all about human motivation and less about evidence and things. It's all about driving towards something like 
what is a plausible and surprising motivation for someone to commit a crime? And that tends to be the most satisfying part of, along with the language of like noir. And I think the contemporary mystery that kind of follows a little bit after it, um, at least some of them, whereas the Sherlock coming to it as a modern reader, the fun is in the deduction. But as soon as we get into like, oh, what a surprise that I, if I just cover the hair on the portrait, he's <laughs> he is the long lost inheritor of this. It's like fundamentally, like as soon as you get into the why of the crime, you're like, ah, okay. Like that kind of took the wind out of my sails a little bit. Um, but that might just be all mysteries. Well, so um, I was talking to Justin Taylor about this, uh, about how everything that Sherlock says, everything rational that he calls on um, to prove his points um, since then has been disproven. It's like a lot of, you know, phrenology or like, oh, well, she's Spanish. So she has the Spanish. <laughs> Hot Spanish <laughs> blood. <laughs> exactly. It's like everything he says is wrong, you know, and not just a little wrong, but entirely wrong. Uh, he's a salesman. What? He's, I, he's a salesman. He's such a salesman. It, 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 like a combination of him like constantly negging Watson for Watson's equally somewhat outlandish, like, oh, well, there's a scratch on the paint. So therefore, you know, like all of that kind of thing. Um, and you can't actually look at a portrait of somebody's like, what is it? Great uncle and determine that they're related. Like that's, that's nonsense. Like this is definitely phrenology level nonsense. And um uh, so what Justin said when we were talking about this was that he had written about um, how uh, G.K. Chesterton at, in the 1920s had had the same problem. And it's similar to the problem, the, the noir problem that you're describing, Willie, which is the thinginess, the objectiness. It doesn't actually, like things aren't actually evidence, really. You can't actually put together a plausible story just from a set of things. Uh, things could mean a lot of different things. Um, and that what you need is people and human motivation and human complexity, human capacity for wrongdoing, uh, that that would have to be the, the center of the story. And so that that was his motive in writing Father Brown Mysteries, Chesterton's, was to both you know, build on what Doyle was doing, but also um, change it. And I think change it towards something that's closer to what we think of as literary fiction now. Fewer quicksand pits. Yeah. I think the thinginess has a, has a strange, a strange effect. The it, it's counterintuitive because as I'm listening to Willie talk about this and, what you just said, Catherine, I think the, th the thingy quality to those early chapters, it really involves the reader in a way that is different than a lot of fiction, regardless of genre that you read now, because it almost has a, um, a comic book quality in that there is a kind of, um, 
like a special kind of framing. I think of that early, that scene early on with the, the newspaper, the, the note and how Sherlock is like deducing what paper it came from based on the ink. And then there was the one word, the, I think the only word that was written was more because it wasn't in the, the article that was being, you know, the other words were cribbed from this one article and that was the word that was missing, whatever. And he was, because of what paper it came from, he determined it was an upper class person. And I think that, that kind of like localized deduction and determination is similar to how a lot of readers are taught to read in high school and in some college in that you're kind of doing a little bit of a symbol search. You're doing a little bit of an understanding, like the red light on in the house down the street means X, like this kind of like, strange puzzle understanding of what literature is, is a little bit of what is present in those early pages. And although that's the kind of reading that I detest, and I think that is like really harmful teaching as a reader, it's fun to be involved in someone's thinking on a process level in that way, because if you can arrive at something so simply and directly with just so little in front of you, you feel, you feel intelligent. And I think that the kind of gap between Watson and Holmes is the thing about the novel that is so, was so striking me, was, was so intelligent, was just like so amazing because if you think, if you think about like, Doyle putting that gap between these two characters and focalizing through the story through Watson and yet fully having the faculty to, to do the, the, the batshit phrenology shit that, that Sherlock's doing. It's like a way of hoisting up his own nonsense, which is really, if you just flipped the Watson and Sherlock deductions, I wonder if they would be in like, like if like early on with the cane or the walking stick. If yeah, you yeah. just flipped that what they're saying, I wonder if there would be any difference really. Like if it would still work, it probably would work fine because it's just like it's just a matter that's coming from Sherlock, who who we have been told is this genius, and through all of that early, I mean, Willie alluded to it earlier, but like all of the, especially early on, all that dialogue, it's just like <laughs> building him up in such a hilarious way. I don't know. It's it's really an amazing trick that he's pulling off. I agree. And I think that if you look at like Jeeves and Worcester stories as deconstructing and building on that, where there is one character whose who's attempts to solve the problem rationally, and it's always a problem of interpersonal relationships. And so like when Worcester tries to solve the problem, he always makes the problem worse. And then when Jeeves comes in and tries to solve the problem, he can kind of do an end run around Worcester as well as an end run around the problem Um, that in a way that sense of like, well, why is Sherlock right? Why isn't Watson right? The author just chose one and said like, this is the genius interpretation, but it doesn't look that different to the reader. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it looks to me like a lot of writers took that as a challenge of like, what can we do? with two characters trying to solve a single problem and one of them is going to be right and the other one's going to be wrong. There's just a lot of narrative possibility in that matchup. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it, 
it's like the, that um, authors start your engines feeling like everyone just took off with that and they did so many interesting things with it. Yeah. And it also, it, you can see the mechanical advantages of it pretty evidently because everything's written in direct address through this sort of like cipher character, like the Watson or the Nick Carraway. Um, and because they're kind of recounting it, there's like an automatic and very natural retrospective mode that allows them to sort of alert you to when things might get important later. Like I think, you know, Watson does this in a couple uh, chapters where he's like, two extraordinary events happened. Like the first, which shall inform the even more incredulous, like incredible latter. Like now I begin. And like, there is this sense of like, if a first person, let's say narrator was to just do that without without sort of the trappings of the story, you'd be like, oh, I don't know that you can kind of earn this authority. Like, why are you withholding information from me? But it's such like a playful and flexible format that it feels almost natural. And like, I want to be led on by this, like it kind of the storyteller, it like creates a natural storyteller component to it, but it also includes the sort of the superhuman, like, the great Gatsby could not be told by Jay Gatsby. Uh, although God knows that somebody has probably tried to write that book. Um, <laughs> like, so, okay. I think one way that what you're saying comes out in this particular story. Um, I mean, I guess it's almost like in the great Gatsby, Nick Carraway's discovery that, um, that Jay Gatsby had this past where he was, you know, J James Gatz, is that right? And mm -hmm. um, that putting together the parts of uh, Gatsby's identity that he's been keeping hidden, um, that's like the literary use of the mechanic that, um, that Doyle is using where uh, Sherlock says that he's going to be working on a different case and he sends Watson to this uh, house to keep an eye on the people but then meanwhile he's in this other place in the moor um, without telling Watson that he's there and then he figures out different parts of the case and then they come together right um, that's that, so awesome I mean that that, that was <laughs> thrilling I love that I, yeah. I just I was I was like this is this is, I love it oh I love finding things that just have that kind of uh, storytelling firepower and then thinking like, well, how can this be used for um, the kind of book that doesn't have a glowing hound? You know, like, can it be used where you have some piece of information? Like, this is something that is often used in thrillers or mysteries where you have some piece of information um, that you think it went off, like Chekhov's gun. But um, you think it has been discharged, um, but then it actually is going to be discharged in a different way, often with a reversal like in the final act. Um, I love that shit, you know? Mm -hmm, me too. Um, and I love the idea that it can be used for all different kinds of storytelling. And it's it's um, it's not just that this is the seed of mystery storytelling. It's the seed of all kinds of propulsive storytelling in different genres. I mean, Sherlock going off to London is, to bring it back to Lord of the Rings, 
uh, that's Gandalf just like disappearing for like a hot second uh, at the end of Fellowship. And I think for most of the two towers. And then when he comes back, it's like, yeah, the the thinking about the story in terms of like a seesawing level of like control and, and almost anarchy where it's like things are so out of control when like Watson sees the guy, he doesn't know on the more like things are like spiraling out of control and then things start tilting back towards control when you realize that it's Holmes and like the way that that feeling of being um, ahead of and behind what Watson knows continually throughout the story is deeply satisfying. Um, I think that's a really great point. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was thinking the whole, it's hard. It's hard not to read something that's a hundred year old for me and not think about how, if I was writing this exact story, how would I, how would I write it? How would I update it? Is there something that doesn't quite translate? And I was thinking that with, so there's the two, there's the two letters from Watson and then there's a diary entry and you get them concurrent. Like you get them one, you get them in sequence. Yeah. Um, which is like a really odd move in a novel. I feel like to get them all at once. I almost feel like you, I don't know. It, it feels like it would, it would make more sense to space them out just because it seems like a ton. It, it seems like so much summary, although this whole novel a lot of it is summary, but I was thinking how funny it would be if you were to get this novel, but the Watson, the early Watson scenes when he's out in, uh, you know, whatever the fuck it's called is, uh, would be in scene. If you were seeing him in scene, I feel like, I don't know. I just was thinking how interesting it would be to not have Watson reporting in a letter, but instead to just have him in scene and some of that stuff, because, there's the performative acts aspect to those letters where Watson is, is dressing up and will you allude to this a little bit where it's like, Oh, you're not going to believe what happened or, Oh my God, this happened. But Watson is so flat and in so many ways, it's such a psych. Like, I don't know. I just, I like the idea of like, uh, like the slow TV or like dogma 95, like Watson out just like, hanging out in, in the moor doing nothing. I don't know. I, I like the idea of it's uh, the novel slowing way down with Watson. I mean, I think it is interesting the question of, of how to update it because people do update it all the time and mm-hmm. the things that they change, like for instance, the, you know, Sherlock, um, the Benedict Cumberbatch uh, show, I think it really puts rationality as being contrary to emotion Mm-hmm. you know like almost explicitly it's like it does not take seriously the idea that rationality would be the force that counterbalances the supernatural supernatural is not interesting enough um it doesn't feel modern enough and the idea that history would be strong enough to need something to counterbalance it is also not something that the show takes seriously but i think the show could take it seriously i think you could do a show that's about how the past isn't past, you know? Um, I think that that is one way that you could update Sherlock Holmes and take the concerns of this book seriously as they are and not make it into like Sherlock is uh, 
unemotional mm-hmm. and that emotional people make mistakes and Sherlock doesn't. Right. I mean, yeah, definitely. And I mean, to be clear, I think it totally still works. Of course. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not insane enough to say this doesn't work for a modern reader. It definitely does. And I, in kind of an amazing way. One more thought I had was um, that that feeling of it being both almost profound, but then when you actually think about anything he's saying, it's like just complete nonsense. Um, it's like Star Wars. The mm. devotion fan base, the way that it feels like, like hmm, Yoda saying do or do not do, there is no try. Like, hmm, that that probably means something that seems important. Uh, there's a light side and a dark side to the force. That's probably almost like religion, but it's like, no, it's just complete nonsense. When you actually think about it, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, <laughs> but it feels close enough to something that would make sense, but it doesn't actually make an assertion. So it's like really easy for a huge number of people, I think, to feel like it does but there's nothing in it to disagree with, mm. you know, anyway, I, I just think that the, culturally the, the role that Sherlock held, like the fact that the people would be so upset when the character got killed off and the role that star Wars had, there's something similar there about how like massive pop culture hits that weren't really designed to sustain that kind of adoration, but they just hit the exact sweet spot at the right moment of like both saying and not saying something that felt really interesting to people. That's really interesting. I, w- I wouldn't have paired the, go for it, really, sorry. No, no, no. I, I, w- I want to I hear, um, I want to hear how you'll get further excoriated by fanboys from two different genres now. You, you're both <laughs> marked people. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I feel like there's something a little bit insidious about both the both the rabid fan bases although i don't interact with rabid sherlock fans but if you're going to extrapolate out what could be dangerous about someone getting really into sherlock or (laughs) uh putting someone like that the character on a pedestal i think it's scary to think about how although ostensibly he has a partner He's a man acting completely alone and he, he doesn't really pull from Watson. And when he does pull from Watson, there's a line early on. Give me one sec here. There's a line early on where he says, I mean, while you're looking for that, I will go for say it. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go for it. The, I mean, it's it's a surprising pairing, but it's not that surprising when it comes to, I think, like sort of like cultural studies, because like Sherlock fans who cancel their subscriptions and there's some apocryphal stuff. I think I got this from Wikipedia that people were wearing like morning armbands for Sherlock Holmes. This is like, wow. you could conceivably argue that this is the first instance of like wide scale modern fandom, which mm-hmm. has reached its it's sort of first, but one yeah. really very distinctive. Yeah. That's a, yeah. Sorry. I shouldn't say the first, but it is, it is a very intense 
iteration early in this century or the 20th century that has now reached, uh, I would argue, unsustainable levels here in the 21st. Um, and so there is, there really is a direct line between um, fans canceling their subscription to the Strand magazine when Sherlock Holmes dies, uh, gets thrown off a waterfall by James Moriarty, and people review bombing Star Wars movies uh, because they don't like the aesthetic choices that someone made. Like there is a very clear one-to-one. Sure. Um, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And I think that you're also right about saying that the aesthetic choices, it's like those aesthetic choices have meaning. And Sherlock also has like, it's like, even though the actual things he says almost never have actual meaning, um, much like the lines from Yoda that I called out of not actually having any meaning, but the there's a meta meaning of the entire narrative. Yes. Everything kind of smacks of like of like snacky profundity. It's like it's like, oh well, wow, this is so deep. But then you're like, this is just like a sleeve of Nilla wafers. Like, what is well, this? Like Yeah, but then the meta narrative is that you can be completely alone and write about everything. Hundred yeah, percent, yeah, yeah, and so exactly. I found I found the line from really early on. Uh, Sherlock saying to Watson after after seeming to praise Watson for his his own deductions, Sherlock says, "When I said that you stimulated me, I meant to be frank that in noting your fallacies, I was occasionally guided towards the truth." <laughs> and that yeah, is like, that. I mean, that is like. Uh, that's a sentiment that is pervasive between pervasive behind all of their interactions in a way. And it's kind of baselined for Watson in what he understands is possible for himself. It's a very bizarre relationship, but thinking about <laughs> real quick, thinking about Yoda. <laughs> I have to, My favorite segue of all time. Real quick, I have to say this. Yoda. If you think about the fact that Yoda, nothing he's saying means anything, right? I completely agree with you, Catherine. And then you think about the recent absolute craze for baby Yoda. Who doesn't, who doesn't talk at all. Who doesn't talk. And it's this kind of, exactly, it's this kind of like, you know, you're pulling from this symbol, this figure, but you're you're making him even more obviously vacuous. And yet more powerful as a result. It's, it's scary. It's, it's really scary. So fuck you, Star Wars. And uh, I don't know what else we got. I think think what's, what's so striking about. uh, Yeah. uh, What's so striking about that though, is the way that like Watson is so obviously a reader proxy and Sherlock Mm -hmm. is so obviously lecturing us kind of via Watson. It's like, you dum-dums, like, didn't you see? But there is just there is this incredible and possibly insidious appetite when we're reading um, for authority. And Sherlock is this like absolute apex authority character. Like he's going to tell you how it is down to the, the conclusion of this um book which i found profoundly unsatisfying because if you think about the modern um or just like a detective story you're supposed to have all the information and you're supposed to pick out what is 
relevant and it's not. Um, maybe supposed to is kind of a strong thing. But the last chapter of this book is Sherlock telling you a bunch of stuff that there's no way, it's like not in the narrative. He's like, oh yeah, I sniffed it and I smelled this scent. And then I also did some digging about like, um, like South America. It's like, <laughs> oh, I, I looked up some, some records from Costa Rica. And it's like, what are you talking about? Um, so there is this, this sense in which like Sherlock is always in control, always in authority and always has more information than you. And yet there's something when you said comic booky, I totally felt it because I, I read this the way that I would a comic book, which is just sort of like almost fugue state, like eyes rolled back in my head, like that guy <laughs> from Dune, just like blowing through it. Um, and because it's so satisfying sometimes to know especially when you read a ton of literary fiction, which prioritizes and prizes this sense of like indeterminacy and like there being no answer. It is oddly refreshing to read a book where there's like some skinny libertarian at the end who's like, actually, <laughs> here's everything that happened. And you're like, ah, you know, in this one fictional instance, I will take that. Thank you, sir. All right, that's all for our Sherlock Holmes episode. Thank you to Alex and Willie for joining me for this. Uh, and as always, thank you to Adam Vera for our music and to everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. Thank you listeners for rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Please also tweet us at litcenturypod or email us at litcenturypodcast at gmail.com. Goodbye till next week.